you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Good evening, Kaleo. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. I actually love that we have a little small group tonight. Um, and yeah, thanks for being here, even though you could be watching football. Um, but yeah, uh, thrilled to be here. And um, I'm Emma. My pronouns are she, her, and I've been a part of Kaleo for about three and a half years now. Um, I've loved every second, and um, I want to first take a moment to honor the Native people that have existed here before us with a land acknowledgement. Uh, let us honor the First Peoples of current day downtown Phoenix, the Thana Otham Nation. As Lisa Sharon Harper says, they were and are here. We see you. We honor you. And we thank you for laying foundations of harmony, balance, truth, and honor. Thank you for stewarding the land where a creator settled your people. We bless you. We bless your elders, past, present, and emerging. It is Black History Month and also the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. So I wanted to share a poem from one of my favorite poets, Drew Jackson, that he published recently on his Instagram about Epiphany. He says this, We stood gazing at the stars calculating the place where the light fell. Prophets of old spoke of starshine and clay, shaped into a life worth celebrating. We are all wayfarers journeying toward what we hope is some kind of glory, until at last we see flesh birthed from more than we could imagine. And for those of you who know me well, which is everyone in this room, you know that I value spaces of poetry, mysticism, questioning, digging into the historical context, and studying the Bible with curiosity and wonder, but still I feel the conviction to acknowledge how complex the Bible can be, even in my own story. It is a complex tool and has been used throughout history to inflict harm, oppression, and manipulation onto people as an abuse of power. That is a reality that we face and we lament, and I do believe that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit can use those same words that once wounded us to do something new, to create art, to restore, and to heal. So with that, I'm going to pray, and then we're actually going to do two passages tonight. It's going to be great. Can't wait. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we thank you so much for this space. Um, Neighborhood Ministries is a special place um, and is special to me and to many of us. So thank you to them and the way that they've allowed us to use their space and to be in community together. Um, Thank you for each and every person that is here today um, and that will listen to this in the future. Um, I just pray that you would stir in us and um, use this time as a community together. We love you. Amen. Awesome. So I'm going to let the scriptures speak for themselves today. You all probably are familiar with some of the imaginative practices that I used to do. Um, I still do them, but not today. Um, We're going to actually just read the scriptures, and we're going to dig into some Old Testament today, and also the gospel passage, the gospel passage, which today is the transfiguration story. Um, And we're going to um, talk about the Old Testament passage because today it's about Elijah and Elisha, and I love Elijah and Elisha, so I couldn't help myself. Um, The Old Testament passage is. Is 2 Kings 2, 1 through 12, and here's how the NIV translates it. It says, 
When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan, this being the Jordan River. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and walking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for these stories that we get to dig into together. Thank you for the ways that they can actually be restorative. Um, And um, I just want us to be able to be present with what's stirring within us and just to acknowledge that you are here with us always, even when there's harder things about these passages that we don't understand or that make us feel all sorts of things. Um, Thank you for just being with us and wrestling with us. We love you. Amen. Okay, so Elijah and Elisha. Here's some context. Um, God, in his story, is still on a mission to partner with his people and has promised through King David, you might know him, um, that a messianic king will come through his line. The book of Kings details the long lines of kings that follow the line of David, all of which fall short of the promised king. For each king, there's a prophet called by God to confront them in their injustice, keep them accountable. So Elijah comes in because the nor- in the northern region of Israel, there's a king called Ahab with his wife Jezebel, to which Elijah is called to confront. Elijah has a disciple, Elisha, to which he eventually passes on his ministry. Elijah is actually one of the few people recorded in the Old Testament to ascend into heaven, so leaving no physical body behind, and that's what we see in this passage, Elijah's ascension. 
And um, Elisha then asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, which if we think about, it's actually kind of crazy that he asks for a double portion of his spirit, um, especially as we'll start to look at some of the things that Elijah did in his ministry. Um, and he also receives it because as we see in the rest of the story of Second Kings um, that go on to tell the miracles performed by um, Elisha, he actually is recorded to have performed double the amount of Elijah. So we see that the spirit is constantly still working in Elisha. Elijah is known throughout the narrative as the fiery prophet. He literally calls upon God to come down with fire, um, is taken up to heaven in this passage in chariots of fire, and is also just stubborn. And God has continually has to continually remind him throughout the story that God is actually more often found in the low whisper and in the slow, painful relationships of discipleship rather in the rather than the God versus God's battles where God comes into fire and consuming flames. It's actually the low whisper of God and the painful, slow, um, beautiful relationships where he's often found. But Elijah's stubbornness and zeal continues, but he does eventually listen. He forms a discipleship relationship with Elisha, and then Elisha goes on to do even greater things than he did. And the discipleship relationship with Elisha begins to show the transformative nature of relationship. And this exchange also comes to mind um, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, followed by the given, giving of the Holy Spirit that collectively through the body of God's people will do more than Jesus did. The double share of Elijah's spirit continues on, and um, even into later when the Jewish people who follow Jesus graft in the Gentile people as well. So there's kind of like that double share of both peoples being in the family of God. And the parting of the water, um, not sure if you caught that, but there's a parting of the water in this one, uh, this passage, that calls back to Moses, which we'll get to in the Transfiguration story. And then I also thought it was kind of interesting. I made no conclusions to this thought, but um, there's three affirmations here of as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And I thought about kind of the reverse happening with Peter's denial of Jesus in terms of him being like, I actually don't know this person at all. Um, but Elisha stays with his master to the end, which I think is actually pretty interesting. And in preparing for this sermon, Chris Townley actually sent me a short article by Victoria Lynn Garvey, and it was a very timely article because it mentions Harry Potter. I'm rereading Harry Potter right now. And in it, she talks about the out-of-time quality that stories like The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, The Chronicles of Narnia, and many others possess, and how, like fiction, the narratives of the Bible can echo some of that same out-of-time, out-of-space quality. And there's a lot of mystery in this passage, as well as the one, the transfiguration story. 
Plus, there is an element that exists in the parallels between the apprentice and mentor, like the examples of Harry and Dumbledore, Luke and Yoda, Elijah, um, Elisha, John the, John the Baptist and Jesus, Jesus' disciples and Jesus. And there's something striking, however, that the stories like Harry and Dumbledore often see the apprentice, so Harry Potter in this example, as the hero of the story. He's the protagonist, um, the main character, whereas we don't see that same thing with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the one that we hear more about than Elisha, um, at least in what I am reading. I haven't found like a lot of resources on Elisha, which I thought was interesting. Um, just that he's not often talked about unless it's in relation to Elijah um, and he's the one who inherited the double portion of his spirit so that's kind of interesting and I'm sure there's a reason but I just haven't found it yet and there's something striking that remains a mystery in all of it. But I also kept reflecting on how maybe there's something about Elisha that understands more about what God is up to in the narrative of his kingdom than I can grasp at this current moment. So with all of those thoughts, um, I'm going to pray one more time and then go into Mark 9, 2 through 9, which is the transfiguration story. Lord, thank you again for being with us, stirring in us all of the different things that you have going on with these characters. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is that resonates with me with Elisha, but there's something about him that is interesting in terms of your kingdom narrative. Um, and I just thank you for the ways that you stir in us and that we can relate to some of the things that these characters are doing, um, even thousands of years later. So we uh, just continue in this space of learning and wrestling, and we love you. Amen. Okay, so then the transfiguration story goes like this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes were dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There it is, transfiguration of Jesus. Um, I find this to be a really striking story. There's several things in this passage that will remain a mystery that we witness. It's kind of a theme here, mystery um, of some of these ideas. But for some context, in terms of Mark's gospel, the transfiguration story appears in the middle and also in the middle of Jesus' ministry and teachings. They, the story also happens hundreds of years after the previous story that we saw with Elijah and Elisha, yet Elijah still remains significant. Uh, for some reason, he's still here, thousand, or, um, hundreds of years later. And my biggest question after studying these passages this week was, why was it Elijah and Moses? 
So why would, out of everybody in the Old Testament, was it those two that were showing up on this mountain with Jesus? And this question actually led me to some pretty interesting places. So I'm going to share some of that journey with you and um, invite you to enter into some of that too. In the second king story, we can see the parallels in the parting of the water as Moses parts the Red Sea. Elijah's story includes many more ties to Moses, including, including he actually is in the wilderness at one point where God provides him bread and meat, just as he does to Moses and the Israelites. And to make it even more interesting, there are many more elements of the Mount Sinai story here, where God gives the tablets to Moses, including the, the mountain, the clouds, the figure, trans, tra- appearance transforming, and so forth. And what's interesting to me is that Moses' experience in his own version of the story on Sinai is, um, is not perhaps just in the Sinai moment. Maybe he's actually part of something bigger, and it's the transfiguration of a community. So he leads the Israelites out of the oppression of the Egyptians into liberation, but sometimes liberation looks like the wilderness, which is a fitting image as we enter into the season of Lent. And their time in the wilderness shapes them into a people who aren't defined by how many bricks that they can make for the Egyptians, but by the way that God is transforming them in his love and patience in their time in the wilderness. And then Elijah's story adds some additional color to this as I think of him and Elisha as being something, part of something bigger in even the transfiguration of the earth. So Elijah does this in perhaps a subversive way. He actually asks God for a drought at some point, and then it's kind of an interesting choice as well because if we think about when Elijah asks for a drought, he's actually trying to, he's trying to affect King Ahab when he does this, but we all know that the most powerful person in the room doesn't actually get affected by resources, um, because they have the wealth and the power to get them elsewhere. It's actually affecting the very people that Elijah is trying to create justice for, so I always think of this as like a very questionable decision on Elijah's part, Um, but um, he actually actually does pray to God for the drought to end after God shows up and provides for his people. And in between, he plays with fire um, in the God versus God's battle and uses fire to destroy soldiers. So it's kind of interesting thinking about transfiguration by fire, but I do think that there is some truth in some things needing to be destroyed before they can be restored. Then, looking at Elisha, I think it gets a little bit clearer with the transfiguration of the earth idea, because he brings restoration and healing to both human and non-human creation. So, in both literal and subversive ways, he's purifying water, he purifies poison soup, he multiplies loaves, he heals leprosy, he raises a child from the dead, he cares for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, just as Elijah does, and goes on to cultivate restoration. Some of those might sound a little bit familiar to those of us who've studied the ways of Jesus, because when we look at Jesus' ministry, he, he, we see him transfigured before us in this story, and in his life of restoring healing and liberating communities and creation. 
and we see the lives of Moses, Elijah, the Israelites, and Elisha. And I see on the mountain transfigured Jesus, transfigured community, transfigured earth. And then in an excerpt from the South African bishop, Desmond Tutu, in his book, God Has a Dream, he adds a little bit more depth to this idea. He says, the principle of transfiguration is at work when something so unlikely as the brown grass that covers our veld in winter becomes bright green again, or when the tree with gnarled leafless branches burst forth with the sap following so that the birds sit chirping in the leafy branches or when they once the once dry streams gurgle with swift flowing water when winter gives way to spring and nature seems to experience its own resurrection the principle of transfiguration says nothing no one and no situation is untransfigurable that the whole creation nature waits expectantly for its transfiguration when it will be released from its bondage and share in the glorious liberty of the children of God, when it will not be just dry, inerrant matter, but will be translucent with divine glory. He goes on to talk about, um, in the same chapter, about the transfiguring time in South Africa after decades of the apartheid where both black and white people in South Africa stood in line for the polls to vote, each emerging a transfigured person and therefore a transfigured community. He says, in 1989, they were ready to kill to maintain apartheid and to keep the beaches just for the whites. And just a few years later, they were a nation that had elected as president Nelson Mandela. This man who languished in jail for 27 years, vilified as a terrorist, and who eventually becomes, became one of the moral leaders of the world. So transfiguration means not just Jesus in white on a mountain. It means liberation, justice, peace, restoration, reconciliation. Transfiguration means heaven on earth, the kingdom of God as the earth is restored. Jesus brings these ideas together throughout his ministry, and I think he's emphasizing them here with the striking story on the mountain. Plus, this, does this not also align with the work that Elijah and Elisha, even in Elisha's dedication to following his master's work until the very end? What a beautiful picture that transfiguration can happen in community and in relationship. There's another article Chris sent me. It's by Jonathan McRae, and it's called The Transfigured Earth, Jubilee, and the Transformation of Watersheds. It was a fascinating article, and it goes even further into some of this. And um, here's an excerpt from it that talks about, um, yeah, that talks about the transfigured earth. It says, from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem, a recurring biblical icon of salvation is not a spectral heaven, but a transfigured earth. This salvation depends on people who care about where they live and those who live there. The transfigured earth also depends on politics, not as control or escape, but as practices that help us live together in common places. 
this article also talks about the year of Jubilee, which would have been a beautiful system of restoration for God's people that included balance of work and rest, giving back of the land, and seeking liberation and reconciliation in relationships. That is, if the people of Israel ever enacted it, which we have zero proof of. This article made me ask the questions, what if our land possession wasn't based on ownership, but on how we cared for the land? What if we truly sought places where we could dwell together in community, even if it requires confrontation with each other and the exposure of our insecurities? And so we turn back to the transfigured Jesus on the mountaintop with Moses, who was both a witness to God's physical transformation and God's manifested transfiguration in his people, as well as Elijah, who was a participant in both the transfigured earth and the transfigured community. I believe Jesus was speaking to us that this transfiguration is not a one-time or two-time event. The transfiguration is a way of life. In fact, the way to following Jesus. Our invitation is to participate in his transfiguring work in loving our neighbor in the land that we share with them. And as Martin Luther King Jr. says in his final speech before his death called, I've been to the mountaintop, he says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming Lord. This is after his life's work and after reflecting in his speech on the many things he wouldn't have seen if he hadn't survived being stabbed in a major artery in his famous, if I had sneezed, um, little section there. He holds on to the work that God is doing alongside him in the civil rights movement. He sees God's glory. He has been to the mountaintop. He still sees the transfigured Jesus, the transfigured community, the transfigured earth, even after everything he's seen and done. May we listen to the wisdom of those who have come before us, enduring the injustice, oppression, violence, and suffering, as, lo- as, lo- as well as the ones who are still with us, enduring those things, but still finding space to, g- to see God transfigured before us. And when I see the transfigured Jesus, I see a world where Palestine is free, where wars are seized, where the oppressed are liberated, the land is given back, Reparations and reconciliation are made. Love has won. The rhythms of jubilee are the only things that reign. The marginalized are brought in. Communion is restored. The earth and non-human creation are cared for. A path is made for those who don't have abled bodies. And I see an invitation for us to live in that world right now. In fact, I've even seen glimpses of this world, um, even just in some of the conversations that Aaron and I had last week about reparations or yesterday being at a coffee shop where there was hundreds of people there supporting Palestine um, just in their liberation. So there's little glimpses that we can see of this transfigured community, transfigured earth even now. And my encouragement is that we may never stop seeing more of God. We never stop seeing and believing in the transfigured earth and community that comes from the Holy Spirit. And may we have the courage to not look away, to walk in the dust of Jesus, and to hope always in the Jesus we see transfigured before us. So thank you all again. 
And let me pray before I open it up to see if anyone has thoughts since we're such a fun, small group today. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you so much again for every single person that is here today. Um, thank you for the image of you being transfigured before us, but it being a way of life, it being the way we move forward. Um, may it be, may it be so, may it be so. May it be that we can be in a transfigured community and be a part of your transfiguring work in us and in your creation. We love you. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.